Hey, you are listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com. We're thinking about what Christ Jesus has come to do in our lives, and we're talking about scars, and so uh, because I'm not a medical guy, um, I did what all the rest of you are good at doing, and that is I looked it up. WebMD, you gone there before? Uh, Solves a lot of my my things for me, for sure. WebMD says this about scars. Wounds are injuries to living tissue. They They include cuts, scrapes, scratches, and punctured skin. When we or someone else touch a wound, there is a natural hurt or involuntary reaction to pull back. Wounds without proper treatment can begin to fester, Now, this is important. Wounds without proper treatment can begin to fester and spread if not treated properly and can become deadly. Now, there's some spiritual stuff in that for sure. Scars are a natural part of the body's healing process. It goes on to say a scar results from the biological process of a wound repair in the skin and other tissues. Most wounds, except for very minor ones, result in some degree of scarring. So again, my apologies for not knowing more about scars, but MD helped us out a bit. And what I understand about these these wounds that we have, these wounds are injuries and they are still unhealed. I believe that some of you today have come in here with wounds that you would talk about if I asked you, what are some wounds in your life? Not scars, some wounds in your life, you would be able to describe those wounds. Some of them now are so deep, we can't even talk about them. In fact, we bury them so that we don't have to talk about them. We don't want anybody to know what those wounds are. We don't want anybody to know that we're hurt by that. But somehow we know that we're hurt by that. Scars develop from wounds. It's a process of healing. And we all know that wounds are not just physical in nature. Physical wounds are often the ones that are easiest to see. If I asked you about the scars that you have and the wounds that you got to sustain them, you could tell me where you were at, the time it happened, uh, exactly who was performing whatever was happening on you. You know exactly about it. In fact, I have people like, hey, you want to see? And I'm like, no, I don't. Too late. They want to, they want to know. They want to, there's a, star, a story behind every scar that we have. And we want people to know about it. And scars remind us of the wounds that we had in our life that are now fixed They are now repaired. And I believe that we have lots of stories to tell in regards to our scars. But let's take note of our wounds today. Because in our wounds, it's where we actually need to find healing. And so I'm going to start and end at the same place. Our wounds need to go to Jesus. Our wounds just need to go to Jesus. So I I didn't tell you the setup for the scars. I'll try my best. Somebody needs something, just raise your hand. I'll say it one more time. I don't know how this works out, but we'll figure it out, okay? The setup for scars, here we go. First thing in regards to the setup for what we're getting ready to do. When an idea is mentioned four times, it's really important. It's really important. That's your first one. Something is said twice, it's pretty important. Jesus, every once in a while, would say these words. Verily, verily, I say to you. And why would he say, verily, verily? Uh, I think because he's saying it twice, you better pay attention. Like I'm saying it to you, and I'm saying it to you again, this word. He said it twice. 
And then we find, like in the Old Testament, uh, things were kind of repeated three times, especially when we find Isaiah in this moment, when he has this moment with God. And this is what he hears being said. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why three holies? Why not one holy? Why not two holies? I guess that's really holy. Three holies. Holy, holy, holy. Three times makes it important. Four times, I would believe it's probably critical. And so I say all of that because this setup for scars happens in all four of the gospel writings. Therefore, it must be rather important. And we're just going to take a look at the the, the two that uh, I want to look at today, but there are four of them that talk about John chapter 12 and Luke chapter 19. We're going to take time to look at those two right now um, and, and, and walk through those two moments. First, we're going to be in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible calls it the triumphal entry. We'll talk about that in a second. But look at verse 12. It says, the next day, the great crowd that come for the feast, this is the feast of the Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches, and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. We just sang that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus is found a young donkey, and he sat upon it, as it is written. Again, we're going to go to Old Testament. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, that they had done these things to him. And now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. And many people, because they heard that, were given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look now, the whole world has gone after him. Can I just say, wouldn't that be fantastic? If the whole world went after him, I wouldn't have a job. You wouldn't need to be here. We would all be glorifying God on our own. Nobody would have to be reminded of anything. Wouldn't that be fantastic if the whole world would go after him. Let's look at Luke. Luke chapter 19, same story. They all saw the accident from different views, and so Luke's going to give us a little bit different story than John, but it's the same thing. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Let me turn to the right page. As they approached Jerusalem, they saw the city, and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known of this day, would bring you peace. But now is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Four times it's mentioned. Interestingly enough, John's is in chapter 12. If you just turn ahead to John, uh, you recognize there's 21 chapters in John. Why did he get to this so early? John's into the details of the crucifixion without question. Okay, the second, the second setup for the scars, if you're looking at your notes. It's a plot to kill Jesus that started with the raising of Lazarus. That's what you'd fill in that next line. The raising of Lazarus. The beginning of Jesus' emotional scars start with the life given in Lazarus. John chapter 11, just one chapter before the one we looked at, 
actually refers to this idea of what happened. Look at it in 47 to 48 of John 11. It says this. 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Go down to verse 53 of that same that same text, because it says this in verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. I started thinking about that, and I was dwelling on that idea. The raising of Lazarus is actually the plot now to kill Jesus. And it's amazing to me that the raising of Lazarus from the dead is what gets the Jewish leaders all riled up. You would think that that would be a good thing. Someone was dead, and now they're alive. You would think that would be a good thing. And I started thinking this. I, 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 got, I got tickled, and then I got mad, and then I started crying. Those three emotions happened in this thought. I started thinking about them killing Jesus because they raised one man from the dead. A bad thing. And then I thought how disappointed they would be when killing Jesus, he would raise on the third day. And he would resurrect anybody who would call on his name. And at first I laughed. Like you fools, you don't know what you're doing. And then I got mad. You dumbheads, what were you thinking? And then I wept because I thought you missed the idea. You missed it. Here's a third piece in regards to these moments of scars setting it up, the importance of the day. This day is going to play an important time for us because it's the 10th day of Nissan, not the automobile. Not spelled the same, actually. Nissan that we spell is with two S's. This one is spelled with one S. The 10th day of Nissan, which is actually April the 6th, 32 AD, if you were to look back at the Julian calendar, which is the one that we go with, they had a lunar calendar, which they looked at. So this is the 10th day of Nissan, and we have a Julian calendar, which goes with the sun, 365 days. They had a lunar calendar, which went 360 days, so they're off a little bit. But, but here's the importance of this day, because this is the day, the 10th of Nisan, is the day that the lambs are inspected and selected. That's a line for you, inspected and selected. According to Flavius Josephus, historian of the time, on a Passover day, any Passover day, not necessarily this particular one, but on any Passover day, there would be about 256,000 lambs slaughtered and on the altar. 256,000. Now, I want you to know, on, on when we think about Jesus dying on the day, on the 14th day of Nisan, when all of these are going to be, after they're inspected, every family takes this lamb into their home for a few days, and they kind of play with it, and they look at it, and make sure it's all clean without blemish, doesn't have any problems. And then, of course, the high priest is going to have to look and make sure that they're all right, that this is a lamb that can actually be killed. And then on that day, they will be sacrificed on the Passover. Sacrificed on the Passover is another line you have. Four days later, on the 14th day of Nisan, they will all be slaughtered. And think about this. Jesus dies on the day that Passover lambs are being slaughtered. 256,000 of them. The smell of blood is in the air. The smell of blood is in the air. All the lambs are going to be killed. This is not by chance that all this worked out this way. 
God knew exactly what he was doing, the importance of the day. What else we set up in with the scars moment? Jesus will be presented on this special day as a lamb of God, the one who will take away the sins of the world. And what happens on that day? Jesus has never been about these kind of moments, just so we're clear. Every time he did a miracle, they always went like, hey, let's make a big deal about it. He's like, hey, keep it quiet. Don't talk to anybody. Shh, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. And all of a sudden, this day happens. And he never wanted this kind of attention. But this day is different. Jesus throughout his life avoided these kind of public events. And he spoke to the crowds, didn't want them to be media events. And consequently, the fact that Jesus seems to orchestrate this dramatic entrance is quite remarkable. Because here's what's going to happen. Just like the lambs are being inspected on the 10th day of Nisan, Jesus is being inspected on the 10th day of Nisan. They're going to walk in and they're going to say, hey, what do you think of this one? I'm the Lamb of God, going to take away the sins of the world. I'm going to be inspected by the nation. The nation's going to inspect me. They're going to all look at me and take a look and find out whether or not I'm going to be okay. But the nation's going to reject him. And they're going to insult him. And they're going to embarrass him. And then they are going to sacrifice him on the day of Passover, which is the 14th day of Nisan. There's an important part of this whole day. And here's the thing. They didn't see it. They didn't even see it. They didn't even recognize it. And I just want to be clear. I wonder, do we see it? Do we, do we get it? Do we understand? And then this last piece about the setup. He's going to ride a donkey, and riding a donkey is going to be a sign of peace. It's going to be a sign of peace. That's a line for you in your, in your notes. Jesus was, was he tired of walking? Like, I just need something to ride on. I have to walk everywhere. My feet are tired. No. He's not on a donkey for that. In fact, Luke will tell us that he actually tells his disciples to go and get a donkey that's tied up, one that's never been ridden before. He had a purpose for this donkey. We'll talk more about what that piece means a little bit later in our time, but that's the setup for where we're at. And then we talk about this. All scars are not physical, and that's true for Jesus as well. Jesus had some emotional scars, obviously, with this text. And here's the thing about scars. Scars remind you that sin is painful. It was painful to him, painful to us. Physically, there are ways to cover up our scars. We'll try to do makeup. Like there's a makeup to cover up your scars, believe it or not. And some actually use them. You can conceal it, make it so it doesn't show up. You can actually go to get cosmetic surgery to go get it removed permanently if you don't want it anymore. However, sin always leaves a scar in our lives. And all of our sins are known by God. Which makes it even worse. Like we think that are quiet and nobody knows about it, but God knows everything, so he knows what you've done. And the scars of sin remain for life. And we have these scars that prevent us from doing what we need to do because the sin holds us back. And there's no makeup available, no cosmetic surgery that's going to take it. Only Jesus is the only one that can say, so be it. I'll cover that one up. I got that one covered. And scars are these physical scars on the outside or one thing, but they're scars both emotional and spiritual. Because then we start to ask the questions, but God, what about those things internally that nobody else knows about? What about those things that are deep in my spirit that nobody else talks about and nobody understands? There are things that we'd love to forget about the scars that have happened to us on the inside. All of us have them. I wish I could undo the things I know are hurt down deep inside of me. But I also know they're there as a reminder that God still died for those things too. It's at this moment that I'd love for you to grab the communion that you have beside you because we're talking about the scars of sin being painful. 
Jesus understands all about how painful your scars are. If there's anybody that understands scars and understands disappointment and understands wounds, it would be our Savior. Jesus really becomes real. If he hadn't been real before, we begin to see his realness to us. And this moment helps us to understand the paint of his spirit. The spirit that sometimes we have that's so selfish. But he takes all of that selfish stuff on himself. And Jesus is weeping over the pain it creates of the sin that's going to happen. His own soul is taken up by the idea that he's getting ready to become everything that we don't want. And he's going to take it upon himself. He's going to endure all of our sinful pain upon himself. And imagine, if we can, how much it hurts us and how much more it would hurt for him to have the entire world on him. He understands pain. And I'm grateful that he went to the cross for you and for me to endure that pain to set us free from the chains of our own self. Would you bow your heads and would you thank him for that? Now, Lord Jesus, we come thanking you again for removing painful parts of our lives that we know we have done in our own self-destructive patterns. And you've taken them upon yourself. And when you're in agony over those things, it's not just because of nails that are in your hands and your feet. It's because you are taking on something you have nothing to do with. You are holy, holy, holy God. And now you've become unholy with all of our sin. And you've allowed it to be placed upon yourself. If there's anyone who understands what our pain is like, it's you. And so we come thanking you again for enduring the cross. For allowing your body to be nailed. To be insulted in the way that it was on our behalf. To shed blood on our behalf to give us life, God. We thank you for that now. And we bring it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. And now church family, as the body of Christ, let's take this bread. Remembering the body of our Savior as we eat. And would you take this cup, remembering again the blood that sets you free from all the painful past as we drink and remember. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Here's the second thing that scars do for us. Scars remind you not to do the same mistake again. Not to do the same mistake. You would think that after we do it once, we would learn. After twice, we would learn even more. After three times, we would avoid it at all costs. But isn't it strange how many times we go back again and again? For sure, the mistakes that we make in life are like scars. They remind us not to tread down that particular road again. That scar should tell us, this is what happened when I did that thing. And I don't want to go there anymore. The great part about it is that Psalm chapter 37, verse 24, actually refers to this moment in our lives. It says... Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him in his hand. He keeps holding on to us, even when we make mistakes. And we need to let our scars remind us that the mistakes that we make are worth learning from. I know the scars of life are difficult to deal with. Though we try to move on, sometimes those scars seem to hinder us in trusting and loving ourselves and loving God, for sure. We tense up and we become fearful of allowing ourselves to love and to be loved again but sometimes those scars help us to remind us to stop and think about what we're doing and not go there anymore like actually repent from it and stop doing it 
And Jesus is feeling the emotional scars while he's coming into the city. So he understands us and he's looking at what the church that we, he's not looking at what church we attend or what accomplishments we've made. Jesus is just looking to find out whether or not you have any scars. And he's going to recognize you by your scars. We have a song that's sung that actually addresses that by a group called I Am They. And it says, I'm thankful for the scars. In the middle of the song, it says this. And now I'm standing in confidence with the strength of your faithfulness. And I'm not who I was before. No, I don't have to fear anymore. I can see, I can see how you delivered me. In your hands, in your feet, I found victory. And then we have this chorus that just gets resounded in our spirit. I'm thankful for your scars. Because without them, I wouldn't know your heart. And with all of my life, I'll tell you who you are. So forever, I'm thankful. He's going to know us by the mistakes we've made. Oh, there you are. Oh, there you are. Oh, there you are. He's going to know us. and get, uh, That guy belongs with me. That girl belongs with me because I know the mistakes. I died for those things. Here's a third thing for us. Scars remind you of your purpose. Remind you of why you're here. If you have any scars today, praise God. Because God's given you a means to show you the world that he takes care of you. That he heals you. And that, he, that he's made you new. Sure, you've been hurt at one time. People may have criticized you and spoken evil about you. Even people sometimes in the church family, for crying out loud. What's family without being rude to one another? We find that all the time. Sometimes we just say things the way we need to say them. And that doesn't always come across real well. But remember when God forgives sin, <laughs> he forgives all of it. He doesn't just forgive the ones he wants to forgive, the ones you think he doesn't He forgives them all. And it's by his scars that we remain in this idea that we have some failures in our life, but God has victory over those failures. And that his grace and mercy toward us and his provision in our lives, we have every day. And we find ourselves living with a new purpose. You have a scar, and now you go, look at what I used to not be able to do, but now I can because I have a scar. It allows me to move forward. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on this day through his tears, Jesus sees his purpose. His purpose is to come and to die on behalf of what we try to fix on our own. And scars remind us why we're here. But Jesus wisely sees the scars of the people before him, and he sees their own self-destruction. That's why he's crying. Because in about AD 70 or so, it starts in about 66, but they end up knocking the whole city down, killing most of the people there. And there was not going to be a stone left on another stone. That's exactly what Jesus is predicting as he's walking into the city. He understood his purpose. Do you know yours? All right, let's move on. Emotional scars are now being experienced by Jesus in both Luke and in John. We see him crying. And so in this first part of his emotional scars, this is the second time that we see Jesus weeping and crying. We, the second time, we would call this the triumphal entry. That's what the world is called this day, the triumphal entry. Just so we're clear, that's not found in Scripture. That's our word to what it is that happened. So I would kind of almost, if we were going to make it a human thing, instead of calling it a triumphal entry, I would call it a tearful entry. A tearful entry. There are two times in Scripture that record Jesus weeping. Both of them are found at the Mount of Olives. One on the eastern slope when he wept over our lack of faith in the resurrection of Lazarus coming from the dead. He's touched by our broken hearts there. Then on the other, the western slope, which is the one we're reading about today, he wept over our sin. He's troubled by our blinded eyes. 
And now there are these different kind of tears. The ones we read about in Bethany that he had just a few days earlier. In Bethany, the Greek word to describe Jesus weeping was dakruo. Dakruo. And this is the only time that we find this verb in the New Testament. It means to shed tears and to weep silently. It's that moment when you get that lump in your throat and tears begin to spill. It's what Brian does pretty much every Sunday, you know, around here. It happens when Jesus sees the grave of Lazarus. He begins to weep because he's hearing them talk and wail about what they, you could have been here earlier, it's four days, you can't get him out, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you don't get it, I'm the resurrection and the life. Why are you talking like this? Watch, Lazarus come forth. However, on Palm Sunday, this day that we're reading about, we are told that he wept with this Greek word called kaleo. And these are the deep sobs that we find Mary using in John chapter 11, verse 33. They're also the words to describe Simon Peter when he wept bitterly about the rooster crowing and reminding him of his denials. Jesus hits the crest of the Mount of Olives in the splendor of the city, and he came into view. And Jesus sees the temple, which was the symbol of God's presence in the city. And I'm sure he reached that spot, and he smiled, and he marveled, and he went, wow, here it is. Today, we would all stop there and take a picture. We'd get a selfie with Jerusalem in the background. However, instead of smiling and taking a photo, gathering up his disciples arm in arm like, hey, look at it, fellas. He cries. He weeps. He sobs to the point that it's audible and they can hear him. It's as if his mind sees the city as it would be 40 years from now, broken, and it broke his heart. It's Palm Sunday. And here's a question for you. Is Jesus still weeping? Is he still crying? He's the center of attention. One would say he must have a smile on his face. He was riding on the back of a donkey like riding a convertible in a parade. Hello, everybody. No. Everyone was partying. Everyone was waving. But internally, he was hurting. Here's another thing that I would see about these emotional scars. Peace has come, and we don't always recognize it. Peace is right in front of us, and we don't even see it. Everyone was shouting their hosannas, which just so we're clear, we'll talk, I'll tell you about that word in a minute. They're shouting their hosannas, but where's the Lord Jesus at? Look at him, Jesus weeps because we don't get it. Peace is finally standing right in front of them, and they didn't even recognize him. He's a few feet away from them, and they still don't get it. How many of us walk through life, and we don't get that we have peace? We've forgotten that we have the Prince of Peace who's over everything that we have going on. And that whatever calamity we want to try to invent, he's still standing a few feet away. Prince of Peace is still here. And, and Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, is actually the text that's talked about this past moment. This is a kingship moment. It was an acknowledgement of a king, how Jesus came into Jerusalem to reveal the kind of king he was going to be. See, in war... In war times, a king would come in on a majestic horse. I would always think it would be black with a long mane. And it had that big clippity-clop sound whenever it would walk in. Like, look out, I'm going for battle. But Jesus does not come in as king on a horse. He comes as a king would come whenever they're trying to come in as a king of peace. I'm going to ride on a donkey. And I'm going to come in on a donkey. But I just want you to know, the military hero that they wanted him to be the Schwarzenegger or whatever, the, you know, the great king, George Washington is going to come into the moment and save the day. He's coming in for peace. But I want to remind you of a text in Revelation 19. We won't go there today. 
in Revelation 19 when Jesus is going to come a second time. And he's going to be riding on a horse. And he's going to come and do battle. And he's going to wage war. And it's not going to be pretty on the people that don't know him. Because Jesus will come as king and ruler. And I can tell you, I can't wait for that day. But they're saying Hosanna. And they go from this word Hosanna, which actually means save, please save. To in a few days, on the 14th day of Nisan, die, please die. Interesting. From shouts of Hosanna to threats of killing. Instead of peace, they wanted war. And they didn't know that the rightful king was standing right in front of them. Because later on the 14th day of Nisan, they're going to beat him till his back is bloody. They're going to place a kingly crown on his head and call him the king of the Jews. What a joke. They laugh at him. They mock him. Because here's the thing I understand about all of us as human beings. That shouting with the crowd is easier than standing at the cross. Shouting with the crowd is easier than standing at the cross. Because standing at the cross requires death. It requires sacrifice. It requires carrying your cross. It doesn't seem to be as fun as shouting with the crowd. Anybody can yell with the crowd. Even when I don't like the team I'm watching, I can yell with the crowd. And someone will look at me and go, why are you yelling? Because I don't want to get killed right now with everybody else standing around me yelling the same thing. Like the one time I wear the Indiana hat to the Kentucky game, and I'm surrounded by blue, not a good day. Not a good day. Uh, so what, you know, I put my hat down, UK. No, like, I'm going to shout, right? I'm going to like, yeah, and they're all going to crucify him, you know. There's this moment when we can shout with the crowd, and it's easier than standing with the cross. Here's the other thing about this emotional thing. These cheers are going to turn to jeers, and all of this fits in the Father's timetable. It's exactly the way he wanted it to come about. This public display seems designed to force the hand of the leaders so their plans would fit the Father's timetable. Everything that we're talking about wasn't coincidence. It wasn't luck. It wasn't chance. God knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing coming in on the 10th day of Nisan. And we find out today that there are still people cheering and jeering at our Savior. Three different kinds of people we find in our world today. One of them is this kind, those who welcome Jesus. They see him as true Savior and they follow him with every ounce of strength that they have. They are people that without Christ they would continue to water aim aimlessly in life and they would be lost forever. And these people bow before Christ as their Lord and King and do so gratefully and enthusiastically. But there's a second time of people there are others who are hostile, like the religious leaders outside of Jerusalem. Some of them are openly hostile. They do everything possible to undermine his reputation, discredit those who seek to follow him. Others are passively hostile. We know that in our world today, passively hostile. These people don't say much. They simply refuse to submit to the Lord in any area of their lives. They're going to their own thing. They don't care a whit about what the Bible says. They view the Bible as a bunch of nice stories uh, with no authority whatsoever. They see Jesus as a nice man who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that's it. But then there's this third group, and it's probably the most concerning group that I have. It's a group that's fickle. It's a tough crowd to watch. 
because they cheer for Jesus as long as it's the popular thing to do. And they attend church as long as it's cool to do so. They claim to follow Christ because it's a good and acceptable thing to do. However, when it's unpopular and when the crowd views it a little differently, they walk the other direction. And these people have not surrendered to Christ and they're not playing, they're playing all of the angles they can. They're interested in public relations and not in discipleship. And this last part of this emotional part is there's a royal moment and it turns to a bloody moment rather quickly. And I would call it this, I would think that Jesus is, has a defiant courage. Because here's the thing, Jesus never had to enter the city. I mean, he could have said, you know, like, I know what's going to happen in a couple of days. I'm not going in there. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to go another way. This is dumb. I've decided I don't want to do it anymore. He could have withdrawn and done anything he wanted. But he turns this kingly royal moment of robes and palm branches and hosannas into a moment that's going to be a bloody moment. Jesus was a man with a price on his head, and he had a road into Jerusalem that led to a public fashion of his own death. And it was, to me, a defiant courage. I'm going to step into it even though I know I'm going to take on the sin of the world on myself when I have anything to do with sin. A defiant courage, but more importantly, a heart of love. A heart of love for every one of us in mind. Because his disciples didn't understand it at first. In John chapter 12, verse 16, probably not the most popular verse in the text that I've just read, but it's one of my favorites in this whole text. Because it says, at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Why do I find this verse so intriguing? Because I think it speaks of our humanity. Anybody read a text one time, not gotten it completely, and then later in a Bible study or somewhere else down the road read it and went, oh, I have never seen that before. It just kind of revealed to you in a moment where you just have a wake-up call. And I think a lot of us kind of wander in this moment where we don't get at first what it's all about, but later we're like, I get that now. I understand that. It's when Jesus weeps and he gives his words in verses 42 through 44. Do you get what day this is? This is the day that peace has come. The Prince of Peace has come. During your visitation, I'm standing in front of you. This is a day of peace. Step into it and see. But here's what I want you to know. That the more Jesus is glorified the more you'll understand his word. The more you give him glory, the more you'll understand who he is. And the disciples don't rem won't remember this until the crucifixion or after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and not until he appears in Acts chapter one will they begin to understand this glorified moment. They go, oh yeah, that's what we're supposed to be about. And they, 12, turned the world upside down and we're here today because of it. And I believe that the more Jesus is glorified in your life, the more you're going to get his word. So keep glorifying Jesus so you'll understand his word. Well, today I have four questions. Yeah, it's going to be more than that, but four questions that I want you to just kind of take away and I want you to kind of ask yourself. They're questions I'm asking you. One, what does your waving branches tell you about anything about yourself? Waving branches, what does it tell you about you? Do you have the spirit that waves branches on Sunday but never speak about Jesus anywhere else? Are you still branch-waving people, crying out for peace in our spirits and still living however you want to live, not finding any peace at all? In fact, when you get to the peaceful, what should be a peaceful moment, you're calling somebody like, what do I do? How about the Prince of Peace? Have you ever tried him? All right, second question. Is there anything in your life, anything in your life that would cause Jesus to weep over you? Is there anything in your life that would cause Jesus to weep over you? Look inward for just a moment. 
what would make Jesus cry of you? Here is the Savior of the world standing before Jerusalem. He sees the people largely going to reject him. And when one refuses the only hope of salvation, then quite frankly, there's no hope. This is the only hope for salvation. And when they reject it, there's no hope. Why would he cry? Because they're hopeless. They're hopeless. And God does not invite us to repent. He commands us to repent. And we should be changing and getting better and drawing closer to him. Third question. What are you waving to get what you want? You know that moment like at Santa Claus, Jesus, Lord God, Hosanna, I want you to get me this. I want you to get me that. I'm not saying you shouldn't ask that way. But sometimes I wonder if it's just so we can get what we want, not for what he wants. It's our desire. It's what we would like him to do, not what we wish him to do because he knows what's best for us. And there's something that you keep waving at Jesus you believe is going to give to you. And I would just challenge you to, to not wave for that. Surrender it. Release control over it. Let go of it. Let him have his rightful spot. Psalm 51 verse 17 says, My sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And then the last question for us. What wound or wounds need healing by Jesus? What have you not allowed him to see yet? What have you not exposed yet to him? Say, Lord, I need you to take care of this one because I can't. Would you take just a moment to examine your life, see the wounds and scars you truly have, and look to Jesus as the only one who can heal them? It's why Jesus came. He wants to be your healer. And he can't heal until we admit we're wounded. So we have to kind of go to the doctor and say, hey, look, I got this thing going on, and I know you're the only one that can take care of it. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and I want you to bow your heads before we sing. Now, Lord God, we're praying, God, that you would um, help us to look at these questions today, to see where we're at and what it is we need to do differently. Lord, I would pray that we would stop becoming part of the crowd that we wouldn't be fickle people, that we would actually be people who yearn after you. Father, sometimes we can't do that until we get rid of the things that we have, the scars that we know that are still untreated. And so, Lord Jesus, I'm asking that every person in this room might come before you, recognizing what they need to submit over to you. That if someone doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, kind of wanting to do life on their own way, that today they would choose to say, I confess you as Lord and Savior. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that, Father, we would find ourselves repenting and turning from where we were at, turning toward you, finding our lives completely changed and transformed. We thank you for a moment of baptism that happens, that you have professed in your truth for us to do, that would wash away our sins, would allow us to put on new clothing, would to make us put to death what needs to be put to death and raised to walk in newness of life. Today, God, we're ready for that. I pray, God, that we might submit to your will and that we would first do it by giving you our scars. Thank you again for the wounds that we have that you've created in our lives. It helps us to depend and trust on you more. And as we sing one more time to you, God, may we come knowing that you're a God who heals. I pray it now in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com.